you know, one of the more challenging topics to talk about in the public square has to be the notion of authority. If only because all of us on some level have been wounded by various abuses of authority, whether we're talking about on a personal level or a societal one. But, you know, given all that, I thought all the more reason to clarify what authority actually is in the biblical imagination. So basically, in the context of the Bible, all authority is essentially a limited participation in God's own divine authority. And specifically, the whole idea is that if anyone has a limited participation in God's authority, the only reason why they have that is because they're called to use that authority to help the people entrusted to their care to ultimately become the persons that God is calling them to be. Now, even though that's obviously a really great definition, at the same time, I can appreciate that for a lot of people, that hasn't exactly been your experience of authority on a local level. So given all that, I want to give a little bit of advice. First of all, to people who have been given a limited participation in God's authority, but secondly, to people who have been entrusted to their care. Okay, so first things first, if you have a limited share in God's authority, whether as a parent, a teacher, an employer, a politician, a priest, whatever the case may be, my advice to you is this, you have to be very intentional. In other words, instead of using your authority to use or otherwise abuse the people entrusted to your care, again, you got to be very intentional to ask yourself, what does God want me to do? And what does he want me to say? And more to the point, how does he want me to do these things? And how does he want me to say these things to help the people entrusted to my care to become the persons that God is calling them to be? Mindful of the fact that ultimately you're called to imitate Christ the Lord, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To illustrate the point, think about the calling of St. Matthew, which you find, of course, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. And so, maybe it's just me, but I, I just noticed this year that when God actually calls Matthew to himself, when Jesus calls Matthew to himself, Matthew is in the process of tax collecting. He's in the midst of sinning, right? So as a matter of background, as you probably know, tax collectors at the time of Christ, they were considered to be public sinners because these were men who had been chosen by the Roman Empire to extort exorbitant taxes from their fellow men, from the people of God, as a result of which they were seen to be traitors to their own people and, more to the point, public sinners. And yet, here is Jesus Christ, the preeminent rabbi, the Son of God, come down from heaven. And what does he do? He doesn't simply call out St. Matthew for his public sin, but instead he invites him out to a meal. And everything that's implied, right? Extended dialogue, equality, fellowship, friendship. And you got to appreciate how provocative this would have been for the people at the time. I mean, certainly the other tax collectors and sinners, they, they got how different this pastor approach was. And so they too want to join St. Matthew in terms of table fellowship with the Lord. Because, of course, what were these people used to? They were used to the pastoral approach of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what would they do? They would simply name the obvious wrong, name the obvious sin, and then subsequently distance themselves from these publicly known sinners and remain amongst respectable company. And yet, again, here's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is certainly not indifferent to the reality of sin, but what's different is that he actually prays into the situation. What does God the Father want me to do? What does he want me to say? And again, more to the point, how does he want me to do these things? And how does he want me to say these things to help the people entrusted to my care to become the persons that God is calling them to be? And what he concludes is that God the Father doesn't simply want him to give these people a good tongue lashing, but instead what he wants is for Jesus Christ to actually journey with these people in love, to give them time, to give them attention, to express the whole gamut of human experience, their hopes, their dreams, their struggles, their desires, their sins, to help them to journey with them until they become fully human and therefore fully alive. 
Now, hopefully you can see how this might apply to a more contemporary setting. And so let's say, for example, that you are a parent who has, of course, a natural authority over your own kids. So certainly a big part of your role as parents is to make sure that your kids basically don't fall out of line. So I don't want to discount that part of parenting in any sense of the word. But at the same time, if you pray into it, perhaps you might realize that God is calling you as well to be very intentional about affirming the good in your kids. To recognize that it's a very powerful thing for a child to hear from his or her mother or father, look, I see this thing in you, which is good, true, and beautiful. And as your father, as your mother, uh, I just want you to know that I recognize that and I affirm that in, in who you are. Okay, but that, of course, brings us to the second half of the same coin, right? Nameless question of what to say to people who are called to give an account to people who hold authority within the context of modern society, which, of course, applies to everyone. Everyone, in a certain sense, is called to give an account to people who hold authority over them in the context of this modern world. Well, at the risk of sounding reductive, perhaps I'm going to suggest that my advice to you is essentially this. To conduct yourself in the context of these relationships with a sense of peace, obedience, docility, and humility. Mindful of the fact that when these particular virtues are present, God's grace is powerfully living and active. So to illustrate the point, I remember my spiritual director back in the day in the seminary saying that a lot of times when seminarians, you know, guys studying for the priesthood, would come to him during the season of Lent and present to him a list of really long, lengthy penances that they had planned to do, you know, in anticipation for the 40 days of Lent, um, many times his job would drop. But to test him, what he would do is say some variation of like, look, instead of doing this lengthy list of difficult penitential practices, I invite you now to do this short list of relatively easier penitential practices. And he would wait for their response. And basically the whole idea was that if they responded to his invitation again to do a shorter list of easier penitential practices with anger and frustration and disobedience, he would conclude very quickly in his mind, all that is not from the Lord. And more to the point, the original inspiration to do these lengthy, hard penances probably wasn't from the Lord as well. Now, I've got to admit that that particular story has always stuck in my mind. And I found in my own kind of personal experience that this particular dynamic has reared its ugly head time and time again in the course of my own kind of pastoral practice. So let me give you a bit of a hypothetical. So let's say someone comes into the confessional and confesses their sins, and they begin by speaking in pious tones, talking about their love of God and their desire to never offend him ever again through their sins. But let's say over the course of them confessing their sins, I start to give them, you know, a little bit of advice and to say, you know, instead of thinking about this particular issue in this way, perhaps you might want to think about it in this other way. If they respond by getting their backs up, by getting defensive, by arguing with me, by interrupting me, or, or giving me their spiritual resume, saying some variation of like, you don't realize how pious I am, or you know whatever the case may be. If they do those things, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, there's something kind of off with your spiritual life. Because what's ultimately lacking in this relationship of authority and obedience is, well, precisely that. Obedience, docility, humility, essentially the fruits of the spirits. And when those things are, are not present, you got to question whether or not the whole thing was really of the Lord. Now, of course, at this point, people might kind of raise the obvious objection. What the people holding authority over you are imperfect. Well, I hate to kind of kill the suspense, but basically they are, right? Because they're human, you're human, we're all human, right? So we all, we all make mistakes. But the thing to remember, though, is basically two things. First of all, this idea, as expressed by Maximilian Kolbe, you will never be called to answer for something which you did under obedience. And so again, you will never be called to answer for something which you did under obedience. But the second thing is this. When it comes to relationships of authority and obedience, it's basically a trust exercise. It's basically an act of trust in God's providential designs. Because basically the idea is this. 
God in his wisdom calls you to be obedient to certain persons who have been trusted with the solemn responsibility of using their authority to help you become the persons that God is calling you to be. At the same time, you got to recognize that if you exercise peace, docility, humility, and obedience in the context of these relationships, you are actually cooperating most effectively with God's providential designs, which will bring about God's grace in a very powerful sort of way, quite independently of the imperfections of the people who wield a limited participation in his own divine authority. Okay, now I realize there's kind of a lot going on here, but to kind of pull all this kind of together in a really concrete sort of way, let me kind of do a quick exegesis with regards to this really famous story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, namely the story of the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. So basically, recall how that particular story goes, right? So around the time of the Jerusalem Passover, Jesus, when he's still a young boy, he's lost for three days. And so Mary and Joseph, understandably, they're, they're searching frantically, and then they find him finally in the temple teaching the elders in the context of the Jerusalem temple. In response to which Mary expresses her displeasure with the child Jesus. But in response to her, Jesus says something and then he does something. And both are really important. So basically what he says, first of all, is, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Like physically in terms of this location, the Jerusalem temple, but also attending to my father's affairs. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? But then subsequently what we hear in the context of the gospel is that he goes home with them and is obedient to them as a result of which he grows in, in wisdom and stature and in the opinion of, of God and his people. And the thing I want to impress upon you is that both of those things, again, what Jesus says and what he actually does, both of them are essential in terms of informing us as to the proper notion of what it means to be in these relationships of authority and obedience. Because basically by saying, did you not know I must be in my father's house, Jesus is saying that my preeminent responsibility before God the Father is in fact to become the person he's calling me to be. And nothing and no one can stand in the face of that, even the Blessed Virgin Mary, apparently. But then the other thing is important as well. Because even though it's true that his primary duty again is to become the person that the Father is calling him to be, Jesus in his wisdom also recognizes that in God's providence, how it's supposed to work is that the way that he becomes the person that the Father is calling him to be is for him to be obedient to his parents. And that's why he, he goes home with them and again is obedient to them. And the idea is that he doesn't grow in, in wisdom and stature and the opinion of, of God and his people unless he does that thing, goes home with his parents and is totally obedient to them in that particular relationship of authority and obedience. Now, just to kind of close off that particular story, like the question is, were Mary and Joseph perfect parents? Well, certainly, you know, even though Mary was conceived with original sin, Joseph certainly wasn't. And more to the point, in the context of the story, like they lost the child for three days. So that was kind of a glaring thing, right? But again, it's a trust exercise. And Jesus trusts God the Father, right? And so basically the whole idea is that Jesus firmly believes that if he exhibits peace, docility, obedience, and humility in this relationship of authority and obedience vis-a-vis -vis his parents, Mary and Joseph, he will powerfully bring about God the Father's providential designs. He will bring about the salvation of the world because he finally trusts and believes that in God's providence, all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord. And may God bless you all.